0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Hello and welcome into our latest edition of Nuclear Cast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Wilder, and today I have with me Sam Wilson. He is a senior policy analyst at the Aerospace Corporation where he covers topics like hypersonic weapons, nuclear command and control, and related space issues. Of course, he used to work for a government agency called the Government Accountability Am I getting that right? The That's Government right. Accountability That's Office, uh, where he was also an analyst uh, related to some of these similar topics. And if he is, of course, a graduate of the University of Virginia and its Batten School. I actually have a friend that works at the Batten School. So, oh, you do? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's a great place, beautiful place. So welcome into Nuclecast Sound.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Adam. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: So today we're going to talk about hypersonic weapons and you wrote a paper not long ago where you laid out sort of four schools of thought. It's of course, it's a paper that's available on the aerospace website. So if you're after we talk, if you the listeners are interested, go to the Aerospace website, Google Sam Wilson, and you can see what he's written for the organization. Uh, so you, you mentioned that there were basically sort of four schools of thought that moved sort of from the right to the left. Uh, could you maybe give us a an, an introduction to your four schools of thought and the basic tenets of each?
1: Yeah, 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 thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Adam, great question. Um, so you know and and it just as brief background, you know I think w- one reason why this is a very think tanky paper, and we've had a couple papers um on uh on missile issues, um you know technical papers, budget papers, and then this again more think tanky, how do you understand the debate and I think you know one reason why i I was really interested in this. Is just that it's it's a hard debate to sort out. I think from the outside, right? Like the you know the views on hypersonic weapons. I think really frequently go to extremes. Um, and, and what I found, and I did you know a, about two years of interviews and and literature review alongside the, the technical work that we were that we were doing on this topic. Um, and and what I what I found was is that you know people's views on hypersonic weapons, um, on, on their technical capabilities were really tied to their strategic views, right? It was really hard to separate, um, you know, people's sense of what should be the military objectives that we focus on vis-a-vis Russia and China, um, versus their technical opinion about whether hypersonic weapons are important for war. So, so the four schools of thought. That I had are on this kind of continuum of strategic aims, right? And so, you know, at kind of the first school um, this was called "Get Ahead," and 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 this this view was that you know hypersonic weapons um, are going to be extremely important for future war, and we should be deploying you know hundreds, if not thousands, of these systems, um, and and we should be Focusing on a lot of uh, a lot of critical targets in Russia and China for for conventional strike, and that's kind of that that plays into why um, you know their views of hypersonic weapons is so important because you know they're looking at a lot of um, mainland targets in Russia and China uh, for for targeting, and, and kind of one of the the folks who I quote uh, for this. Pers- uh, for this view is, is Dean Wilkening, um, who's written a lot about, uh, hypersonic weapons and, and he's, he said, you know, we need, you know, perhaps, you know, many hundred and many thousands of these systems. And he's called out, uh, where, you know, which types of systems we should be thinking about developing hypersonic weapons for. And a lot of those are, are land-based systems, right? Like our, our, our systems within mainland Russia and China. Um, the, uh, I'll jump now to the, the the fourth school the the kind of opposite school which was avoid the race and and this view had the opposite views on both the, the technological position and the strategic position so the, the technological position uh, was that hypersonic weapons aren't a big deal um, and and they're not going to be important for future war and the the strategic position was we shouldn't be overly focused on these these targets uh, for conventional strike from from mainland China and Russia, that you know putting uh, you know hundreds to thousands of systems, uh, attack systems in the Asia Pacific, targeting these mainland targets in China, is going to create more uh, escalation risk. Going to create more uncertainty. It's going to prompt China to you know, to pursue newer, scarier systems and so on and so on, right? And so you have this this, this split that's not just technological, uh, but it's, it's strategic, right? It's like what you wanna do with these systems. And, and that thread I found really interesting. I thought that was the most important takeaway of the paper and for understanding, um, you know, this debate is just that, you know, the technology, you know, even, even when you're talking to technology experts, right, their their views um, are also, you know, especially when you're talking about deployment, are also very much with strategic objectives in mind. And those strategic objectives are often unsaid, um, and you have to pull at them. And, and so this, you know, this debate about hypersonic weapons is, is is tangled. I'll just very briefly the second and third schools, which I think are less important. I really think the, the first and the fourth are the most important. Um, you know, we're, we're focused, uh, the second school was focused on, on defense, you know, how we need to develop more systems um, to track, uh, for tracking uh, these types of capabilities and defending against these capabilities. And then the third school was we need to at least protect against um, conventional strikes in our homeland. We need to defend NC3, make sure that if they're going to create a, you know, a, 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 a strategic effect, on the United States, um, that they have to use nuclear weapons. So we need to, you know, harden, create more resiliency uh, to protect against those systems. I saw a lot of important views in the second and third, but but really um, uh, the first and the fourth, I, I think, are the most helpful for, for kind of understanding, uh, understanding the debate.
0: You know, whenever I read
1: the report,
0: uh, it made me think to... I was in a debate over a book I did a couple years ago, and it was roundly criticized in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and so I responded, and they responded. We had this tete-a-tete, yeah. and in the end, what I ultimately came to was that there are very, you know, this is really about worldviews. And it's about do you, you know, what I would call a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview that man is a fallen creature and there's evil in the world versus sort of the Kantian idealist view where, you know, humanity is neither good nor bad. It's all made. And then with the right, you know, institutions, which then teach the right values, we can sort of eliminate, you know, bad in the world we can reshape the world to our, our liking, you know, Lenin talked about this, he, he called it Soviet man that he would remake human nature. And so I, I think as you talk about the first and fourth positions, it seems very much akin to the broader debate, which I equate mostly to the, the discussion over nuclear. And you know, is that do you see a world full of evil? And do you look at the Russians and the Chinese and say they're bad? Or do you look at the world and you say, "Hey, we can make it good. We make changes, and it'll be good." And it seems your hypersonic discussion, in many respects, sort of followed that—you know—the tenor of that uh, debate.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I think I think you can make a lot of assumptions. You can make a lot of predictions um, about. Where folks view, uh, what, what what folks view, might, what what they might view on hypersonic weapons, just by the simple question of, you know, is uh, the simple statement of someone saying, I I don't think China is is a huge threat, right? Yeah. Or someone saying, you know, I, I'm I'm extremely, you know, try, I'm a, I'm extremely hawkish on China, right? Like that that sentence right there, you know, I can make some assumptions uh, and some predictions that are probably pretty close. Um, for some, you know, not not everyone, right? Sure. And, and the paper the paper does talk about, you know, there are important exceptions. Um, and I kind of have that that two by two for for folks who are thinking about because um, these two questions are important. And most, I think, I think most people, the answer to these two questions is yes or no. Those two questions being, you know, should we be um, you know focusing on uh, mainland targets with conventional strike systems in mainland uh, mainland China and Russia, and then do we think hypersonic weapons are uh, will be extremely important for future war? And and you almost everyone the answer to those questions is either both yes or both no, but there are some exceptions, and those exceptions I think kind of illuminate um, you know where you know what the spectrum uh, of senses on with respect to, to our deploying hypersonic strike systems. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's, an interesting issue, um, because I, I think it, it really, as you said, I think it ties into to these broader questions, it ties into questions about, you know, what you think about the cold war, uh, you know, it, it ties into questions about what you think about arms control race, arms control and what you think about arms races, right? Like all these views. Um, get kind of wrapped in, and and you know, I, I didn't even ask people about their view on the Cold War, but in in these interviews, people just kind of interjected these questions about you know whether the Cold War was 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 a was a good thing, was a bad thing, whether arms races can, can produce produce good outcomes, uh, whether they're inherently uh, inherently bad, inherently dangerous. So it was it was um, it was yeah. particularly interesting.
0: I, I often find that. That the, the uh, like, takes this concept of strategic stability. So, you know, everybody says, Oh, that's destabilizing, or we need to maintain strategic stability. And I say, Oh, can you define it for me? What is strategic st- stability? What would I measure against? And I've, I've yet to get a good definition of strategic stability. What I do know is that whoever's speaking to me, anything they don't like is destabilizing anything they do like is stabilizing and that's that's sort of the best definition of strategic stability strategic stability is the things i like that that's sort of the best definition i've ever gotten and and it seems that hypersonic you know hgvs whether they're you know they they're they come off of an icbm or whether they're uh, you know air launched that they're in many respects going to achieve sort of a similar status where whatever the outcome is, whether stability or instability, is gonna be based on, on what I think. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the nature of when you have something like nuclear, and hypersonics in many respects is a lot uh, sort of where the cyber and space world are, where people can pontificate about a cyber war or a space war. But until you actually fight one and then you have some, you know, some data to then go back and essentially do the aerial bombing survey after World War II. And then you can say, hmm, Dohe wasn't quite right. We've never had that chance and we've not had it with hypersonics. And, you know, so we're speculating about space, cyber, hypersonics, quantum computing, all of these kinds of things. And so therefore, it's it's uh, it's quite challenging to actually sort of figure these things out.
1: Right, no, no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, I mean, and this is what I, I, this is why I wanted to dig into this is that I think it's problematic. I think it's problematic when, I mean, you're absolutely right, in my interviews too, people use the same terms strategic stability. I mean, they co-opt each other's terms, right? Um, use them fundamentally different ways. But I, I think it's really problematic when you have the strategic and the technological Entangled like this, right? Uh, because it's it's hard to have a really an honest debate um, because you know folks have different strategic assumptions, they have st- different strategic ambitions, um, objectives, and and so you know the what, what's really I think misunderstood is is the technological, and because it just keeps getting into these um, you know these almost these discussions of, of principles and. Kind of what we want of the world, and and how we view threats, and how we view uh, you know competition with uh, with you know with, with adversaries, right? And and so you know I think it's you know we had a uh, a different paper um, that was about the missile the, the missile threat environment, um, and that was technological that, that was a technical paper. And, and I just you know there's just so many misperceptions um, that exist and. And those don't get as much attention as sort of these, you know, these extremes of oh, hypersonic weapons. This is just another purported missile gap, or you know, this is the the greatest military invention since the introduction of the longbow and in, in the in, in the Hundred Years' War, right? And, and so you have these. You know, how does someone? You know, how does Congress? How, how do people actually try to to? To, to untangle when you have physicists, right? Physicists that are, you know, spent years studying hypersonic weapons saying these, these incredibly different things. Um, and, and I think that, uh, I, I mean, again, I think it's because of the strategic and, and that, that makes it really hard to understand the technical. And in the meantime, we're not really like dissecting a lot of the, I think, the technical misperceptions that exist about the broader missile environment uh, generally.
0: So we're about halfway through the show, and, of course, we have to take a break for our sponsors. So when we come back, I want you to give us a brief discussion of what you see as some of the biggest technical misperceptions, and then we can delve a little further into the differing views amongst the technical community. We'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit. Come join NucleCast at the Summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the Nuclecast booth to say hello. Executive Producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the Nuclecast website at slash nuclecast Okay, we're back. We are with Sam Wilson of the Aerospace Corporation, one of the nation's five or six, I think it is, FFRDCs. That's your federally funded research and development corporations. And we are talking about hypersonic weapons. So Sam, what are our technical
1: misperceptions? Yeah, and, and I'm not, I'm gonna talk less about technical misperceptions of hypersonic weapons and more about the broader missile environment. Cause I, I think it's hard to, to understand one without the other, um, so you know, as you mentioned, I, I was working on strategic force structure issues when I was at the on the congressional side, the Government Accountability Office. Um, I was there for about eight years, and then when I came to aerospace, continued that work. And I got to meet with some of our um, our folks who had been doing technical work on this for a really long time. One of those is Steve uh, Steve Dunham, who had been working on been working on a missile taxonomy uh for for over twenty years, right? He's been doing this this technical work on missiles for, for three decades. Um and and we had this report out um that was kind of arguing for a new missile taxonomy. And and I think the, the problem is is that you know there's this, this pervasive misperception that missiles generally fall into uh, three categories. One being that they're ballistic. They're they're fast, um, but and uh, they're not maneuverable. Right? They operate like you know, just like you throwing a rock up in the air. And so they're you know, it's a predictable parabolic trajectory. Um, but they're fast. There are some people that kind of have issues with the speed, but well, let's just let's just assume you know, there's a basic understanding. Uh, ballistic missiles are fast, but are not maneuverable. Then there's cruise missiles, which are maneuverable, uh, but not fast. Right. And, and that's, you know, the second category. And then there's this new thing, um, this niche thing, this hypersonic, whatever, hypersonic missiles, um, that are fast and maneuverable. And, and this is why, uh, they're getting so much attention and this is why, um, they seem so threatening. And, and the problem I think with, with this is that these three categories are wrong. You know, before before hypersonic weapons, uh, before hypersonic weapons in quotations were were deployed. You know, even you know the small you know the small number of, of systems that um, that you hear are, are deployed. We've had fast and maneuverable systems for a really long time, right? Um, you know, in the '80s we had Pershing 2s that had maneuverable reentry vehicles. Um, I, I think. It, Another example is, is just ICBMs. In the 1970s, you have ICBMs with multiple independent reentry vehicles, meaning that you could have the same missile with, that could target uh, Atlanta and New York, right? So, you know, I think a lot of the, the threat that is, is talked about with respect to hypersonic weapons is that, okay, we can detect the boost. We detect when they're launched. Um, but we don't know where they're headed and they're traveling very fast. That's correct, right? Like, like there's no technical misperceptions about that. What's wrong is that, that that's different from a lot of other systems that exist and that have existed for a really long time. And, and so it's this, it's not what people are saying about hypersonic weapons. That's necessarily wrong. Some of, of, of it is, but what's really wrong is people's frame of reference for what they're using. Um, and, And I think this is, because of a couple of reasons, one, you know, people call a lot of things ballistic um, that aren't ballistic. Uh, We call things that are ballistic. I mean, Persian twos, we call this ballistic. Um, uh, One example is, is China uh, deployed uh, DF-21D, which, um, and and DOD called this a a ballistic missile that can target, um, that can target ships. Well, if anything can target ships, it's not ballistic. Right, You're talking about, that requires a, and a sophistication and, and a level of maneuverability that you're not gonna get from a purely ballistic missile. So so a lot of the stuff um, that people talk about is ballistic um, is not. So in, in that paper that I mentioned, we we surveyed 77 systems and those were Russian, Chinese, North Korean um, and Iranian. So not just Chinese and Russian, also North Korean and Iranian. and. And of those seventy-seven systems, which were excluding cruise missiles, right? So we're, we're putting aside the stuff that's obviously maneuverable. The majority of those missiles were maneuverable, right? So the majority of things that people are talking about with respect to ballistic are actually uh, maneuverable. And and to me, this isn't, you know, I think some people could say, oh, well, fine. This is a semantics issue, you know. Maybe the definition of ballistic and and all these different categories, you know, and, and all these different fora say. They define it ballistic this way, but everyone kind of knows that ballistic does can mean um, you know as long as it's you know sort of parabolic uh, that you know it can be maneuverable. Um, but that's wrong because in people's when people are differentiate hypersonic weapons from ballistic missiles, they keep going to this to this definition of ballistic, um, and I actually have a couple quotes, uh, for you, if you don't mind, and and I'm there, my old, my old, uh, employer government accountability office had this, this line, unlike ballistic missiles, which can reach similar speeds, but have a relatively fixed flight path, hypersonic weapons, dot, dot, dot. Uh, the congressional research service, unlike ballistic missiles, hypersonic weapons do not follow ballistic trajectory and can maneuver and route to their destination. Um, you know, Everybody gets this wrong. I pick GAO and CRS because I know how much work goes into every word that they publish, right? So, so if they're getting it wrong, everybody's getting it wrong. Um, you know, one of my one of my uh, a recent one that I saw, Atlantic Council had a primer on hypersonic weapons, and and they wrote, you know, ICBMs follow a predictable trajectory, so a target can be discerned after a launch is detected. You know, I just mentioned, you could have, with an ICBM, since the 70s, 50 years, you have the same missile, you could have one, you could have one re-entry vehicle headed to to Atlanta and one to New York. So how in the world is a target been discerned after launch, right? Like, that's just not, that's just not true. So, you know, it's this, this problem of, of we just, we just are failing to appreciate that, you know, a lot of. The missile environment is behaving in this way that we're finding so threatening um, because of these, these these categories that I think we've assigned to them, and to make us make it easier to understand, um, and, and it's really I think it's 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 hurting the conversation.
0: Sure. So what what would you then say is the solution?
1: I, I mean, I think we should try to understand that missiles are a spectrum rather than, you know, fit into uh, neat categories, right? And and I think maneuverability is a a spectrum. And and it may be that that glide vehicles, hypersonic glide vehicles, hypersonic scrams, you know, scramjet systems are kind of one end of that spectrum. But we should stop, I think, you know, and I just had a, a paper about Missile warning and tracking, the defense budget, and I mean, you're seeing, you know, this, there's there's so much emphasis everywhere on you know the word hypersonic, um, but again, just a lot of these other systems are really really scary, um, and we're just not we're just not giving those as much uh, attention in the press. We're not giving those much um, as much attention in the in the public debate, um, and I, I think that that again, it kind of then you know, it pushes people back to this problem I spoke about the beginning where you have this, this hypersonic missile debate that's that's all about strategic assumptions and we're not, you know, getting to the, the, the technical questions, right, the technical um, questions that we want to pull on and, you know, are there categories of maneuverability that we should be thinking about rather than just sort of saying, you know, ballistic versus cruise versus hypersonic. I, I think getting a more sophisticated understanding of what of what different, you know, what what does, you know, how much maneuverability is really concerning to us from a theater perspective, from a strategic, from, from a homeland perspective, um, you know, trying to get a more nuanced conversation, I think is really important.
0: I guess one as I think about it, what I think probably worries, you know, on the, you know, on, on your right side of the spectrum is this, growing challenge of what I have a collaborator that we've written several articles about this challenge of what we call attack time compression where you have shrinking times to detect, decide, and direct your forces to respond. And hypersonic glide vehicles, which, you know, you're going to detect the thermal from, you know, Sivers or other space assets um, you may be able to track to some degree but you know you have some maneuverability that gives quite a bit of variation in the short period of time whereas you know like you said there are there is some uh, maneuverability in what we think of as traditional ballistic systems but we we sort of have more ability to kind of think where we think they're going to go I mean, I've sat in the Missile Warning Center and watched projected tracks myself, and and there's a sense of comfort, I think, that you get when you think you know where some, even if you're going to be destroyed, you at least feel more comfortable knowing where it's going. And so there's a level of discomfort with the idea that you have shorter amounts of time to try to, you know, detect, decide, and direct for a system that can move hundreds of miles in a matter of a few seconds and you're, you know, you've got questions in your systems of survivability and, and, you know, your, your ability to create dual phenomenology and some of these things that we've sort of grown up over time in the nuclear world that give us the comfort and sort of assuage the concerns of particularly, leadership in congress and the white house and now it seems to be creating more uncertainty than i think we're we're obviously comfortable with and and i wonder how we address that challenge
1: it's a it's a great question i think this point is is critical right i mean i, I you know and this is why i i dislike some of the, the discourse around hypersonic weapons that it's, it's this sort of, it's an arms race or it's something, you know, like, whether it's like a, some people say it's a self-inflicted arms race or some people say that, you know, this is the, the race to the future. Well, what's missing is that, you know, fast maneuverable missiles um, create, are, are, are scary because of exactly what you said. Decision makers are forced to make really consequential decisions with really imperfect information, right? Like say the president, hey, we, we detected a boost or, or five boosts, but we don't know where they're headed or, or here's the circle of where all this could go. Um, that's really scary. The thing I would challenge you on is that I think with a lot of the systems that we're talking about that are called ballistic, it's the circle is still really, really big. And, and that's where my issue is. This problem exists absolutely with hypersonic glide vehicles. But it, ha- it exists for a lot of other systems sure. that we're not calling uh, that we're not calling glide vehicles we're not calling cruise missiles, right? We're calling ballistic missiles, and I mean again, I, you know, the ICBM one is, is an obvious one. But I mean, I, again, with some of these maneuverable reentry vehicles um, are getting more and more sophisticated that the lines between what you call a glide vehicle and what you call uh, a you know a MARV uh, and a ballistic MARV system is like you know, be my guest trying to split those. Cause I, I, you know, I just think, I think it's really, really hard. And, um, a lot of the, you know, and we don't, right? Like when, in our paper, um, in our missile taxonomy paper, we don't, we, we say, you know, this is, these are systems, you know, hypersonic systems could be systems that, um, simply just maneuver, uh, uh, aerodynamically, or they could be systems that have propulsive, Propulsive um, maneuverability and can maneuver aerodynamically, but you know there's other systems that can maneuver aerodynamically, and there's other systems that can maneuver impulsively, like they have impulsive propulsion to, to um, like ICBMs with multiple independent independent reentry vehicles. So I just, I I think this challenge is really really important and keeps getting ignored. Um, but I just I just don't think it's it's limited to, to glide vehicles and, and scramjets. Yeah,
0: and the big one of the big current concerns for me is that as we think about hypersonics, and I do think there's some new characteristics, and anything new is you mm-hmm. know presents uncertainty and fear. Um, but I don't want to lose track of low observables because we have challenges like the Russians can fly their bombers, uh, you know, close to the edge of their space, their airspace, and they can launch low-observable cruise missiles uh, that can fly into U.S. airspace largely undetected and begin striking targets. And so we we still have a low-observable problem that we have to address. And so, you know, hypersonics, it's a challenge, it's new, but it's not the only challenge and it's not the only problem. And, you know, quantum computing If that becomes the reality that we're often led to believe uh, that could present challenges that go far beyond anything that we expect to see with hypersonic vehicles so i i i agree with you it's 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 new in some ways it's old in some ways but we have lots of other things we still have to think about
1: yeah 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 i I just i just think you're 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 right. There are new characteristics, but it's 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 more of a spectrum. And and I I think once we can get there, then we can start thinking about you know some of the areas of that spectrum that are more concerning than others. And um and, and that, yeah, and 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 that, and that then gets to some of the characteristics that are more concerning to us than others, and and we can try to unpack that. I think that's the right approach rather than sort of um you know, what's happening in the public debate now, but, but, you know, I mean, on the flip side, you know, now we are, we've, you know, we're embarking on this new missile warning and tracking architecture, um, that is partly thinking about, about this, this problem of, how can we try to give more information to, to decision makers? Um, and you know, this is obviously really challenging because our, the, the entire mission of missile warning was always missile warning, not missile tracking, right? It was missile warning because we, Detected uh, the boost, and then we could, you know, figure out where it's headed, right? And, and so now, um, uh, you know, with this, this these new proposals, these new architectures, and and I had a paper out um, just a month ago or two months ago about the missile warning tracking architecture and some of the debates within Congress and the the budget request from the administration. But but I, I think that's that's a critical area for space right now for. for DOD space, and it's going to be an area of intense interest uh, for, for the next several years. Um, you know, partly because this area is so important. Uh, you have the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, writing a, an op-ed um, in the Wall Street Journal about missile warning and tracking. Uh, but but it's it occupies a huge percentage of the budget uh, for the Space Force, um, and it's also... You know, it's it's also kind of teasing out this idea of what does a defendable architecture mean, and, and and how you know for critical space missions, missile warning and tracking clearly being at the top of the list. Um, you know, what does what does a resilient architecture look like? What does a defendable architecture look like? What does that cost? Right? What are the tradeoffs? Um, so so all those are kind of coming. Uh, all of those issues are are, are wrapped up in this this missile conversation And it's just again it's just there's no it's a really fascinating issue this, this area um with so much change even though i was just just saying that some of these things that we've been scared <laughs> about you know have existed for for 50 60 years um it's also a, uh, a, i think a topic that is undergoing serious serious change
0: unfortunately we we are out of time so it's a, it was a quick uh, 35 minutes. So I want to thank Sam Wilson for being my guest today. Uh, we had a great talk about uh, hypersonics and some of the misnomers and maybe reorienting the way we think about missiles in general. And so thanks for being with us, Sam.
1: Adam, really, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, and we'll see you next time on NucleCast. Well, we just had a great interview with Sam Wilson of the Aerospace Corporation. Our topic, hypersonic weapons. Now, what was interesting is Sam has done an analysis of sort of where everybody in DC stands on these issues. And he created four essential camps. The Get Ahead Camp, that would sort of be in nuclear terms, your maximalist camp. The Shields Up Camp, that's sort of your missile defense advocates your draw the line, which would be generally passive defenses, and then your avoid the race, which would be where many of your advocates of disarmament would stand. And so that was an interesting discussion. We also talked about some myths that many Americans and many in the strategic community have about missiles writ large, and it turned out to be a really interesting conversation. And so we... I, I, I thought it was pretty good and hopefully you'll enjoy it too.